This is the word of the Lord. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to, hear, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Our fathers, we open this profound passage describing your blessed Son. Give us insight. May the light come into us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, church. It is wonderful to be with you all. And I've met some new people here who weren't here when I was here before. If you would like to say hi to me afterwards, I'd like to meet each and every one who is new here to the church. Now, you have your Bibles open to John's Gospel, and I've entitled the message, The Word Became Flesh. Now, as we begin this passage, the only thing I could think of saying is breathtaking, exhilarating. I actually don't have words good enough to explain what we are about to look at in this passage. This passage causes us either to fall on our knees in awesome worship and reverence or If we're honest, what we're about to read is sheer madness of mind. It's nonsense. It's foolishness. It's just bizarre what we are about to read if it is not true. There's actually no third option. This verse answers, or these verses answer, the age-old question, who is Jesus Christ? I think the most important question in the world, as you will see in just a moment. But there's another question. Who would write such claims about anyone here upon this earth? As we look at this prologue, if it's sheer madness, if it's just religious fanatics writing this, why is the prologue so beautifully written in a literary way? The logic is so incredibly profound. We have to ask, who would write such a thing, and how would they have such ability to do this? We are literally looking at maybe one of the most important passages in all the New Testament about Jesus Christ. Let me just read a few things people say about this passage, but particularly verse 14, which is the centerpiece of our passage. William Barclay writes, it might well be held that this is the greatest single verse in the New Testament. A lifetime of study and thought could not exhaust the truth of this verse. Verse 14. Here we come to this sentence for the sake of which John wrote his gospel. John MacArthur writes, this may be the most profound statement ever uttered in the universe. Well, let's see if that's true. F.F. Bruce, one of our greatest New Testament scholars. This is the event, verse 14, to which the preceding statements, and they've been pretty profound, of the prologue have been leading us. The word became flesh. And then the great Augustine in the fifth century wrote this. It is this scripture more than anything else in the New Testament that provided the foundation for the doctrine of the person of Christ, formulated in the Creed of Nicaea and the definition of Chalcedon, A.D. 
4.5.1. Now, let me just take one moment. We looked already that the word was God in verse 1. The word was God. Let me just remind you of what uh, Rick said last week. Jesus is the Logos, the word. He pre-existed. He is co-equal with God. He is fully divine. He is the agent in creation of all things. He's the giver of life, the zoe, eternal life, true life, fullness of life. He trumpets the light, conquering the darkness, triumph of the light, conquering the darkness of sin, Satan, evil, spiritual darkness. It could not put out the light. He pushed back the darkness. We are dealing with something utterly profound in our entire universe. So now let's continue some of the things that we learned last week in the first five verses. And John is now going to tell us more about this person who is life and light, the precarnate word. Now we're going to look at the word becoming cardinate in this world. So, number one in your outline, you have an outline right in front of you, the herald of the light, the herald of the light. There was a man sent from God. Well, that ought to shock you right there. A man sent from God. His name is John. He did not come on his own initiative. He's not self-appointed. Instead, this man is there to inaugurate the coming of the Messiah upon earth, the word becoming flesh. His whole duty, if you'll notice in the verse, is this. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So he has one job and one job only to point to the light, to point to the word who's now come into this world. He has a very special mission to let people know who Jesus Christ is. He's a man sent from God. So important is the incarnation that there's a special man set aside to tell us who he is. Notice he points to the light. Why does anyone have to point to the light? I mean, light is light. I mean, you see it, you see it. Why does he have to say this is the light who has come into the world? That's because the world is in utter and complete spiritual darkness. Now, listen to this verse in 2 Corinthians 4.4, which explains why do so few people know who the light is? The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Let me read that to you again. It explains a lot. And Paul was being criticized for why more didn't believe. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. My dear friends, the world is in a state of spiritual darkness. And the darkness is dark. And so when the very light of God comes, moral and spiritual light, the very logos of God comes to speak to us, do miracles before us, no one sees them. We have to realize how great the darkness is. I'll give an illustration with my mother. My mother was a strong unbeliever. And I had witnessed to her a number of times and could get nowhere. She did not believe in God. She believed that. And she said this to me many times. When you die, you just go in the ground, you rot. It's all over. Don't worry about it. I even asked her uh, as she was facing death, are you scared, mom? No, I'm not scared. You just, I'm tired. It's time to go in the ground. So one day, she's, I'm with her at a restaurant, and she's doing something to a purse, and all of a sudden, a statue of Mary falls out on the counter. And I said, Mom, what are you doing with the statue of Mary? Oh, she says, Mary's gotten me through my whole life. I said, Mom, you don't even believe in God. And you realize the darkness, the spiritual darkness, you can present the truth we're going to look at right now. And you could be, have the greatest apologetic, but the darkness is dark. The God of this world has blinded their eyes. And unless the Spirit of God removes that darkness, it's almost as if we're talking a different language. 
the darkness, John comes. Now, John has a purpose, and it's the same purpose uh, uh, the evangelist has, and that is that all might believe through him. So, if you just take your Bibles for a moment and turn to the last, next to the last chapter, John, John chapter 20, look at verse 31. It's always good to go to the end of the story and get the purpose of the whole book. Here's the purpose of the whole book. But these are written by the evangelist John the Apostle so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, which we'll see, that by believing you may have life, eternal life, real life, genuine life, in his name. So that's John's purpose in writing this whole book. Well, that was the whole purpose of John the Baptist, to have people believe. This becomes a key word in John. Almost a hundred times the word belief is used in this gospel. Now, he says something we wonder why he would say it. John was not the light. Well, I don't think we realize how powerful of a preacher and man John the Baptist was. Thousands came out to hear him in the wilderness. Now, if you remember, last year on Good Friday, we had a Good Friday service here. And if you remember it, for about four or five minutes, we had a clip of Billy Graham preaching. How many remember that? Well, I was sitting right up here. And as I was watching Billy Graham, I realized this man is amazing. He is like a giant magnet. You can't take your eyes off him. He has a voice that's just thunderous, and he has a large presence. Just power exudes out of him. I think John the Baptist was a man like that, a very powerful man. And long after John the Baptist died, there were followers. We see that in Acts chapter 19. People still following John the Baptist said, this guy has to be from God. Yes, he was from God, but he says, I'm not the one. I'm only the voice. I'm only the one who points. My job is to point so you will believe this is the one. So he has to clarify, John was not the one. John is not the light. He points to the light. How much greater is Jesus Christ? We'll see in verse 15. Now, second, the rejection of the light. John makes clear Jesus is the true light, verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, whether they see it or not, this light always divides, was coming into the world, that's incarnation. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now, he's called the true light. Now, John likes this word true. He'll use it, the true bread, the true light, the true word. He means by the word true, real, the genuine article. There are many false lights. There are many counterfeits. So this word true often is in contrast to that which is counterfeit. All through the New Testament, we're warned again and again of counterfeit Christ. People who say they're the light, but they're not the light. Now, he is the true, true light. Let me explain this because it can get confusing. What do we mean he's the light? It's rather abstract, isn't it? Well, do you remember at all when you were an unbeliever? When you were an unbeliever? And none of this made an ounce of sense. In fact, you didn't even listen to it. Here's an interesting thing. In John 3, we're taught about this doctrine of being born again, right? The new birth. When Christ comes in to take up his residence in your life. When he comes to do that, he sheds your mind and your heart with light. All of a sudden, as a born, a new child of God, you see things totally differently. Your ethics is different. Your morals are different. You now know for the first time why you're here upon earth. You know about God. You know about eternal life. You just see things totally differently. Why? The light is in you. His light is shining through you. He's the true light. And it lights up your your life. You understand things. Now, it's tragic. But when the true light, the genuine light came into this world to lighten every man, They didn't even know it. They were completely indifferent to it. Now, I have been collecting over the years 
magazine covers and articles. And I'm shocked how many times Time Magazine, U.S. News World Report, magazines have full cover ads about Jesus Christ. So here's one from the Denver Post. I don't know if you can see it. It's the weekend news. Who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? Well, he must be pretty famous. They want to put him on the front cover. Here's one. 2,000 years of Jesus. By the way, the light has never gone out in 2,000 years. U.S. News and World Report. In search of the real, the real Jesus. Whoop, there it goes. All right, here's another one. The real Jesus searching between Mel Gibson and the Gospels. Not hard. That wasn't too hard. Why Jesus was killed. U.S. News. Here's Time Magazine. Jesus at 2000. Never put the light out. The secret of the nativity. The secret. What Jesus saw in Jerusalem. The Jesus code. On and on. I don't even have all my articles with me. All these articles in search of Jesus. If all they did was read John 1 verses 1 to 18, they'd know they wouldn't have to write all these articles. Isn't it interesting if you read these articles, I've read all these articles, they go to all these liberal scholars, they go to these people who uh, think they know something and they never get to it. They never get to it. He's the mild-mannered humanist. Uh, He's a great teacher, a great ethicist, uh, uh, a great philosopher, a great uh, guide, a great martyr, all these things. But they never get that the word became flesh. Because if they read John 1, verses 1 to 19, they say, this is the craziest thing we've ever heard. Jesus is the eternal pre-existing God who is in flesh. When he came into this world, they basically did not get it. They did not see him. But it's even worse. It's even more disheartening. He came to his own. Look at it carefully here. Verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Came to the Jewish nation. They had been waiting for the Messiah. They had the whole Old Testament. And when he came, he did profound miracles, messianic miracles, blind people seeing, the lame walking, walking on water. Try that one. Feeding the multitudes. He did extraordinary miracles, but even greater than his miracles was his teaching. Nicodemus in John 3, you're going to get to that in a few weeks. Nicodemus was one of the religious officials who actually got it. And he said, we know you are a teacher sent from God because no one can do what you do if he was not from God. He saw the light. Now the rest, you know what they said? Read this in Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, the, the, the official leaders of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, came to Jesus And they said this, you are in league with Satan. That's how you do these miracles. The prince of darkness is in your soul. You're one of his. That's how you do these things. It was out and out rejection of their Messiah. They were in total darkness. A real interesting point. In all three synoptic gospels, you get into the gospels away And then you have the official rejection. Then you have Jesus creating the new family. And then you have the parables. It's the same in all three gospels. John is different. John begins his gospel with rejection. He came to the world, the light, the truth, the life. They didn't even know it. Came to his own people, people of the Old Testament, waiting for the Messiah. They rejected him. You're of the devil. Have nothing to do with you. Now, this leads us to our next point, the reception of the light and its promise. I need to move along here because our real gunpowder comes up ahead of us here. The reception of the light and its promise. Now we come to a ray of hope here. A great promise, a great gospel promise. Verse 12, but to all, Jew, Gentile, universally, to all who did receive him or accept him, Key word, key word, who believed in his name. Now, that little phrase, believed in, 36 times in this gospel is a key phrase. Believe in Christ or believe in God. It shows faith in its very active form, leaving self and moving out into union with Christ. 
It's a very important phrase. We cannot elaborate on it now. It'll be elaborated on throughout this whole epistle. Here's a promise to all who did receive, accept who he is, who believed in his name, meaning his character, his person, his teaching. God the Father gave the right or the authority to become the children of God. This term, children of God, is John's term for believers. He doesn't say sons of God. That's reserved for Jesus. We are the children of God. Now, anyone who accepts this this one who has come into the world and believes in him, well, then God gives you the authority and the right to claim being his children. That's a beautiful promise in light of the tragedy that people have rejected the light. He came to his own. They didn't want anything to do with him. In fact, they crucified him. That's what they did to him. This is the gospel hope. And we'll see different people like the Samaritan woman who will come to believe in him and be called the child of God. Now, who were born not of blood. These are three statements that all basically say the same thing. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. That's probably thinking of the sexual act. Nor of the will of man, thinking of the husband wanting a child, but of God. So, what he's saying here, the contrast is the natural uh, descent of people through physical birth and biology and the will of people to want to have children. You can't be born a, a child of God physically in any sense. You, you, you cannot derive your, your statehood as a child of God by your parents or by anyone's desire to have you as a child. It, it cannot happen but by God. In other words, salvation is an act of God. It's from God sovereignly. It is not anything physical, anything that you will. It is by God. Now, this theme of salvation is from God and God alone will be in this book brought out many times in a very strong way. So the contrast, this becoming a child of God is not by any natural descendant, any natural process. It's a divine process that only God can do. Who were born of God. This is actually an introduction to John chapter 3. You'll be born again. And when Nicodemus heard this, he was rather confused about this spiritual birth. Well, there's a physical birth. We all know what that's about, but it's not by physical birth. It's by a spiritual birth when the Holy Spirit literally comes and lives inside you and sheds the light. And then you get the the life. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the life. It all comes inside of us. Every child of God, everyone who's a child of God has the life of God and the light of God. And all of a sudden you see the world totally differently. It's that drastic. Now, the truth of the light, Roman numeral four, the truth of the light, the incarnation of the word. We come now to the most important statement about the incarnation. Three very simple words, yet so profound. This simple statement, the word became flesh, separates Christianity from every other religion or philosophy, period. It separates Jesus from all the religious leaders of this world. It is the heart of the Christian faith. The very word of God took flesh for man's salvation. Listen to what Alexander White says. The word was God, verse 1. The word was made flesh, verse 14. These two sentences out of John contain far more philosophy, far more grace and truth and beauty and love than all the rest that has ever been written by pen of man or spoken by tongue of man or angels. The word, the logos, the eternal logos, second person of the triune God, there at the beginning of creation as an agent of creation became flesh. What could be more staggering than that? God taking on flesh. Let's just look at these words very quickly. The word. 
We looked at that last week as the message or the spoken word of God, the acted word of God. It's connected to Genesis 1.1 because verse 1 of this passage says, in the beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. Well, God just spoke and the world came into existence. His very, his very speech, his very intention. God's word is creative. It's revelatory. It's, it delivers. It, it is, is powerful and active. Jesus is called the Word, the second person of the triune God. Even before he became man was the Word. It became. Now, the verb became, very interesting, to enter in a new condition. To come to be what one has never been before. The Son of God became flesh, humanity. A real historical person, a human. When the Logos became flesh, he did not cease becoming God. Instead, he added a human nature to himself. Now, when Marilyn, who's my wife, she's down here. We're someplace down here. Look for the prettiest lady over here. You'll see her. When Marilyn, my wife, had our first child, she became a mother. But she didn't cease to become a wife. The Lord Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate state, when he stepped into time and history and through the Virgin Mary, took a body, he didn't cease to be God. He added to himself human nature so that we can say he is truly fully 100% God and he's truly fully 100% man. And that brings us to the word flesh, flesh. John doesn't say the word became man, the word became humanity, the word became body. He uses a more crude word. He says the word became flesh. It's a very strong term that emphasizes here the frailty, the vulnerability, the creaturely weakness. Just a real down-to-earth, you're looking at it, there it is, there's my flesh. That's all you're going to see, by the way. John removes any ambiguity about who Jesus is, who the word has become. He's become flesh, just like us, taken on our full humanity. Now, I don't want to get far afield here because it'll come up again. But John in this prologue, at the same time he's presenting who the Lord Jesus Christ really is, the God-man, is dealing with counterfeit Christ. And false views of Christ. And he chose this word flesh to make very clear, in the most unambiguous way, Jesus was not an apparition. He wasn't just temporarily a man. Because there were people called the docetics. And this this teaching went on for hundreds of years, saying, because it was a Greek idea, God can't become flesh. God can't become man, humanity. That's not possible. Maybe God jumped into a man and jumped out. That, that, that's, that was done before. Or maybe a man who thinks he's God. But John is going to say, no, he's a God-man. And God took on flesh, our humanity, fully, totally. And so he's dealing with a lot of false teachings that were floating at the end of the first century. It's rather subtle, but if you know what John is facing, he is answering these false teachings And so we'd have to say that Jesus is one Lord Jesus Christ with two natures, divine and human. We call it the hypostatic union. All right, now one underneath this uh, Roman numeral, the God-man lived among us. So this outstanding statement, here it is, the word, the eternal, pre-existing, co-equal with God, the word there at the beginning of creation took on flesh, became what he wasn't once before. He was always divine. He will always be divine. But now he takes to himself flesh. That's the the miracle of Christianity. Do not put Jesus in the pantheon of other gods. Maybe you've heard this statement. I've heard it many, many times. Well, there's many ways to God. All the religions are saying the same thing. How many of you have heard that? All religions are saying it's all about what? Love. All religions are about love. Jesus 
is not just another religious leader, a leader. He is unique in the absolute sense. He's incomparable to anyone else. Our faith is incomparable to any other religion. No other religion, no other religious leader is making this profession. And so I said to you at the beginning, it's either madness or it's true. I don't know a third alternative. The God-man lived among us. Let's look at this in verse uh, 14. And the word became flesh, that's our key term, and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So now a whole series of statements are going to be made about Jesus Christ. So when you see these magazines, let's look for Jesus. Who's Jesus? Just go to this passage of scripture. And you're going to either have to accept the outstanding, exhilarating statements made about him, or you're going to have to say, I don't want anything to do with this, this, this man. This cannot be true of any man, that he pre-existed, he's eternal, and that he's uh, the agent of creation, and now he takes on flesh. I just do not believe that. Incidentally, all Muslims do not believe that. I have seen some videos of some of their great, they have some very powerful teachers, by the way, and they're online, and, 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 and millions of their followers are following these teachers. And they make very clear, this cannot be true. God cannot take flesh. It's not possible. Of course, they don't have a trinity, which they dislike anyway. Only a triune being could do this. So it all teaches us about the triune nature of God. So for 33 years, the God-man lived on earth with us. Now, the Greek word for dwelt is a, a word that has the idea of pitched a tent or the tabernacle. And so this brings up the thought. There's a lot of allusions here to the Old Testament. That just as God's glory, his Shekinah glory, stayed in the tabernacle, later in the temple, now we have something infinitely better. We have the very glory of God in a person here upon earth. And so uh, the apostles say this, we have seen his glory, the Shekinah glory, we have seen it. But it's a special kind of glory. It's the glory as of the only son from the father. I want you to notice this key word here, two in your outline, we have seen the glory, the God-man. When he says we've seen his glory, he means his goodness, his excellency, the perfect character. These men actually saw a perfect man upon earth. Have you ever seen a perfect person? No, you haven't. And if they tell you they're perfect, they're liars. We're all weak and feeble, and we're so easily subjected to our weaknesses and our faults. In fact, we can't even see all our faults. Others see it. They're already good at seeing it. They saw a perfect man upon earth. They saw the glory of God in a man as God would intend it. They saw his miracles, his teaching, his grace, his love, his death. All were the glory manifested. In fact, in John 2, when he turns water into wine, which by the way, biologically is quite a, quite a feat and good wine, by the way. When he turns the water into wine, the writer says, we saw his glory. So all that Jesus did, all that he said, just his very presence, his attitude is his glory. But it's even better. The glory is the only son from the father. This is a very important Greek word, monogonese. It means one and only, unique, specially loved. The only kind in its class. Throughout John, this is going to come out again and again, the unique, intimate relationship between Jesus Christ and God the Father. And here we have it first given to us, the glory as the only son. That's, this is the best way to do that, from the Father. He is in a special relationship with God that no one else has. For example, in the Old Testament, Abraham had a number of children, he had Isaac and he had Ishmael, and he had other children. I don't know if you know that. He had other children later in life. Why an old man would want more children, I don't know, but he had more children. But only Isaac is called his beloved son, his only son. Well, 
Others were biological sons, but this was his special, unique son of promise. Jesus is in that relationship with God the Father. One of the great themes of this book is the unique character of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. In fact, in John 17, Jesus will say, the Father has loved me before the creation of angels and the world and the universe. We've been in a love relationship before the universe ever came into existence. He is the only son. He is the son in a way that none of us could ever be the son. And we only become sons because we're connected to Jesus. But he is the son of God. That's what we read at the end in uh, John 20. One of the reasons for this uh, book. So we'll get to know the son of God. This unique person. And then he's full of grace and truth. Oh, so much could be said about this. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's grace uh, embodied here upon earth. Now, grace is a, is a beautiful word because it's a New Testament word. Just very recently, I traced all the uses of grace through Paul's epistles. It's amazing how many times he uses grace. Grace is God's favor towards us, completely undeserved. You can't earn this. You can't merit it. You can't work for it because it's something he gives freely and graciously to whoever he wills. We're saved by grace, his goodwill, his favor, his kindness, undeserved by us, never can be achieved or earned. Now, Jesus is grace manifested, and it's manifested in his beautiful, tender words to sinners, reaching to the unreachable. Think of the Samaritan woman. He, he enters dialogue with her. He leads her just where he wants her to go to bring her to the point where her eyes get open and she realizes this is the Messiah and now she's winning people to, to, to the Messiah. That's his grace, just lit, taking this lady through this process. Others don't understand. And then he's full of truth. He's full of integrity. There's no word of Jesus that you have to question or think, how did he say that? He never misspeaks himself. He never has to apologize for anything he says. I'm apologizing all the time. Absolute integrity in every word of his. Now, get this. The perfect balance, full, of, full by the way, supersaturated with grace and truth. He's perfectly balanced. Now, here's what happens to us. We usually are full of truth. You know, we're defending God, defending the truth, and we'll step on and walk over anyone who does not follow the truth, right? And we can be very harsh and very ugly about this and drive people up. But we are standing for the truth. At least I am. And then you got people who are full of grace, full of grace, you know? I don't like all that doctrine. It's just... Divides, doctrine divides. And what you have left is just sentimentality and uh, wishy-washy religion. Now, Jesus is supersaturated with grace and truth. He's perfectly balanced, perfectly balanced. That's what we want to be. We don't want to just be truth mongers and doctrine blockheads. And we don't want to just be sentimentalists, just, you know, ooey gooey and love is every. no. We need to be both and perfectly balanced. Jesus is the perfect man. They saw the glory of God in this man. They saw whatever man should be and whatever God wanted us to be. They saw it in Jesus Christ. Every attitude, every word he said, every reflection on his face, it was perfection. It was grace and truth. Perfect balance. And then three, John's witness to Jesus' superiority and preexistence. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So he comes back to John again because, well, he's a man sent from God, right? John's a man sent from God. God sent this man to point to the light. And this man, John, who knew Jesus personally and was his forerunner, inaugurating the ministry of Jesus, uh, this man, John, has to say, well, he has a higher rank than me, although he was one of the greatest prophets ever to exist on this earth. I wish we had a film of him preaching. I do. But we'd probably become followers of John, right? We'd start the John cult. John bears witness. That's his job. By the way, that's your job too. Did you know that? 
John bore witness. John the evangelist, he bore witness. This whole whole book is about a witness of Christ. You are to be a witness to the word became flesh. Yes, you're to tell people about Christ. They may not believe you. They may think you're nuts. They may think this is outrageous what you're teaching here. But you're to bear witness to it because the light has come inside you. And the life has come inside you. And now for the first time you see and you have God's life within you, in your soul. You're different than the man walking in darkness. He cannot see. You can say the words, but it will not penetrate his head. You might be sitting here right now and saying, what in the world is this man talking about? I don't even know what he's talking about. Logos and flesh. Come on, give me something I can get a hold of like lovey-dovey. John is a witness, and he says this, he's superior to me. Although John was older uh, uh, chronologically, and chronologically in the ancient world, when you're older, uh, you have a superior position. Wish we had more of that today. Finally got to be old, I could have a greater position. But uh, uh, it's the youth culture. You've got to be young to be popular. Now, old people, you know, they just want to ship them off someplace. Go sit in your wheelchair or something. But in John's day, when you were older, you had a class. You had rank. Well, he says, he outranks me. And he's before me. In other words, pre-existence. He's saying he is greater. John is saying he is greater. He's superior. Now, this brings us to four. Jesus Christ is the source of all blessing. Verse 16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Oh, this is magnificent. Are you ready? From from Christ's fullness, which is the very fullness of God. Because listen to this, Colossians 2, verse 9. Are you listening? It goes right along with this passage. For in him dwells all the fullness, same word, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of the God. When you have Christ, you have the fullness of God. And and if you understand this, you understand that he is the inexhaustible resource of everything about in our life. Any blessing, any good thing. He says grace upon grace. There's a little debate about this, but it probably means something like this. You ever been by the side of the ocean? The wave comes in, okay. Then it goes and the wave goes out and it comes back and then the wave comes in again. Just wave after wave. Wave after waves of God's favor and God's goodness. God's grace just comes throughout our whole life. If you know anything about your Christian life, you look back at your Christian life, you have to say from his fullness, we have drawn grace upon grace. He has helped us again and again. He's blessed us and blessed us. And then he turns around and blesses us again, even though we do foolish things and shouldn't be blessed. The inexhaustible source of all blessing comes from Jesus. Not only does he save us, he keeps us and he blesses us. Sam Dalton, the black evangelist, used to say, he always blesses the socks off us. I don't know what that means. I need my socks on me, especially in the winter. It gets cold. He blesses the socks off us. He's constantly blessing us. The NIV says, one blessing after another. He's the source of it all. And if you're honest with your life, you'd have to say, I have received from all his fullness, all his source, I have received grace upon grace, favor upon favor, blessing upon blessing. Let's just say for a moment, none of this is true. None of it's true. Do you know what I'd have to say to you? I have received grace upon grace. Someone has taken care of me all these years. I have, I have avoided so much disaster in life because of, well, it must be true. I have to say like the man says later in John, once I was blind, now I can see. Once I was blind, now I can see. Someone has blessed the socks off me all through life. Well, it's the fullness, the fullness of Christ. His blessings have just come. Uh, it can't be a loser. You can't be a loser when you have Christ because he blesses the socks off you. Jesus superior to Moses and the law. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, and this might have the idea of grace, this, this verse uh, uh, 16, maybe spill over in this verse about grace upon grace upon grace. There's a contrast between law and grace. And what he's saying is the old legal economy and the New Testament gracious economy is superior because of Christ. 
The old covenant and the new covenant. There's no Mount Sinai in the New Testament. Here's more evidence for the absolute uniqueness of Jesus Christ. As far as the Jews were concerned, Moses was it, the voice of God, the mediator of God. Jesus is greater. He is superior. It's not just the law. It's grace and truth. Listen to what S. Lewis Johnson writes. The law was preparation, while grace is provision. Law gives the knowledge of sin, while the grace of the Son puts it away. The law commands and demands, but grace offers and gives. The law is a shadow, while grace provides the true substance of the new age. The new order fulfills, surpasses, replaces the old order of Moses. So, the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry and this new economy is much superior to Moses, which was law and demands and curse and condemnation. Not that there was not grace in the Old Testament. There was grace in the Old Testament. The very moment Israel was receiving the law of God at Sinai, they were down there melting a gold calf out of their jewelry, and God should have just stepped on them all and killed them all. Instead, his grace, his grace allowed them to even live. All through the Old Testament, we see the grace of God to his people. But this is a whole new order, a whole new age, marked by the age of grace. Because he's full of grace. And he's full of integrity and truth. And now we come to our last verse. You probably never thought we'd get here, did you? We did. I'm just a few minutes over time, and I ask you now to forgive me. If you don't forgive me, I'm not coming back. All right, last point. Jesus Christ is the perfect revealer of God. The only God, or son, some people think, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. What a climax. What a climax. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the only God who is in the very bosom of God the Father, and his whole ministry is a revealer. He reveals God. He reveals God to us. No man has seen God. Exodus thirty-three twenty says, you cannot see my face, for men shall not see me and live. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, the king eternal and more invisible, the only God. You cannot see God in his essence and live. It's not possible. But we will see God in the face of Jesus Christ. In fact, get this. This is not the end of the story. We will live eternally on a new earth and a new heaven, and he will be the light. He will be the light of eternity, and we will be with God and see God in the face of Jesus Christ, the only Son. Here, this very unusual phrase. We cannot go into the details of it. It's very complex, but he's called here the only God. Now, we began this chapter uh, last week with the Word became, the Word was God. The Word was God, and we end this prologue with the only God who's at the God, Father's side, he explains God. He exegetes God. He reveals God. He narrates God. He tells us everything we want to know about God. Dr. Johnson uses this nice illustration. We all know what it's like to have a small child look at us in the face closely and touch our ears and our nose and stare at you to get to know you. We've all had that little children play with your nose and your ears. Well, Jesus says, look at me in the face. Touch me, see me, examine me closely. Spend time gazing on me and you will see God. His compassion, his love, his truth, his mercy, his perfections, his beauty, his excellence. Here is what the Father is like. So, we're told here that we see God in the person of Jesus Christ. As you read this and study this gospel, you will see God in flesh right there in front of you. Now, I want to close with this because I think it summarizes how a person in that first century, particularly a Greek, would read the magnificent statements made about Christ. Extraordinary statements. Unique statements never made of any human. Listen to what Leon Morris says. Listen carefully, and I will end with this. 
John, in his use of logos, the word, is cutting clean across one of the fundamental Greek ideas. Remember, most of his readers would be Greek. The Greeks thought of the gods, and they were very proud of their gods, as detached from the world as regarding its struggles and heartaches and joys and fears with serene, divine lack of feeling. They could care less if you get killed. John's idea of the logos conveys exactly the opposite idea. John's logos does not show us a God who is serenely detached, but a God who is passionately involved. God became flesh. The logos became flesh. And he lived among us. And we looked at him and we saw him. We're going to see him in the gospel of John over and over and over. You're looking at the face of God in Jesus Christ, the word. And the purpose of all this, of the many, many weeks you will study this gospel, is that you will believe in him. That you will see him. Your eyes will be open. Your brain will open up. And you will see the light. And the life of Christ will come into you through the Holy Spirit, John 3. And you will be a new creation, a new creature. You'll see life differently. And you'll draw from his resources, grace upon grace upon grace. Because it's full, inexhaustible. He will make your life meaningful. You'll know why you live. And you know where you're going. And what you're to be like. If you've never come and been born again. And seen the light and the life. And that he is a God man. No other God man has ever existed or ever will exist. And fall before him in repentance and faith and be saved. He says, he promises, he will give you the gift of becoming a child of God. Stand with me as we close. Our God, our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, God in the flesh, the eternal one, the pre-existing one. The one with inexhaustible supplies of grace And truth for us daily, moment by moment, to all our needs. May we see him today. May we understand him. John 2,000 years ago wrote these words for us today to believe and to have eternal life. May we believe and have eternal life. That gorgeous, wonderful gift that Christ is offering to us who himself is eternal life. Amen.